Dear friends, what a life uh, we find in the life of Jacob. What a, what a story, what a biography there is in the life of this man whose life was so marked by his name, right? We know that Jacob means deceiver. And the life of Jacob was marked by such deceit, by such fraudulent dealings, by such clever scheming and plotting and, and all sorts of tricks and gimmicks that he used. Again, you can read about those in the previous chapters of Genesis. All the things he did with Laban, the, the awful trick he pulled on his brother Esau at the very beginning of his life. This is the life of Jacob. And yet, as I noted on the outline there, he was a man of considerable success. He had flocks and herds. Do notice in Genesis 32 how he says in verse, in verse 10 that he had crossed the uh, Jordan with only his staff. And yet, look at, look at his situation now. He comes across the Jordan now with so many flocks and herds and has been greatly blessed by God. You'll remember that uh, when Jacob fled from his family, he had just pulled that trick on Esau, right, whereby he had gotten the birthright for himself. And Esau was very upset with him, very angry. And it was as Jacob left his family home that he came to Bethel. And do you remember what happened at Bethel? Really, when you think of the life of Jacob, you have to think of these two places, Bethel and Peniel. Those are the two places when God met with Jacob. And you might say they're the bookends of his life, Bethel and Peniel. Now, as Jacob was leaving his family, as he was leaving the promised land, God met him at Bethel. And children, you remember the, uh, the ladder, right, going up to heaven, probably more like a staircase, going up into heaven. And the angels of God were going up and down on that ladder. And then... Uh, Jacob came to the land of Laban, and he, uh, he, he, that's where he grew and became so prosperous and so wealthy. And then he is now returning to his family again. Now, you can imagine that Jacob is already thinking in his mind. I wonder what Esau's thinking. How's Esau going to think when he sees me coming back? I'm sure that his parents would be happy to see him, Isaac and Rebecca. But I'm not sure that Esau is going to be so happy to see me. Again, I put that verse for you there in the outline, uh, verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge. Now again, this is when Jacob left. This was before Bethel. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. So Isaac had died. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Isaac, I mean, uh, Jacob knows full well, right, that Esau is not pleased with him. And so uh, Jacob is a little nervous going back to the promised land. You can imagine that Jacob's nervousness, his anxiety, spikes by a hundred, right, when the messengers that he sent out come back and say, oh yeah, Esau's coming to meet you. And Esau thought it would be a good idea to bring 400 men with him. Now, it doesn't say that these are armed men, but the implication is very clear, isn't it? 400 men to come to meet Jacob. And now Jacob is in terror. Now he is in the greatest distress. What is he supposed to do now? And you can read about all the things now that Jacob does. Again, Jacob is a genius of a man. He, all his life he's plotted and schemed 
all his life, he's tricked other people, right? He, and again, the history of Jacob is filled with these kinds of stories. And so now Jacob goes right into action, right? And as soon as he hears this, he thinks, well, the first thing I'll do is divide up my, my group into two parties. And uh, perchance Esau falls upon one group and destroys them, at least I'll have the other group. Now that shows you the desperation that this man, he's, he, he, he's, he's brought to such an extent, right, that the, the, the best thing he can think of is that, well, if half of them get destroyed, at least I'll have the other half yet. So Jacob is in great distress. He prays, he cries out to God. And then, verse 13, so he spent the night there. Now even here, once the sun has gone down and darkness has fallen on the camp of Jacob, Jacob still is not finished yet. Oh, and by the way, I, I failed to mention all the different uh, uh, herds, right? He, he, he carved out of his own herd a special present for Esau. And he very cleverly says, okay, you take the herd to Esau. Now, here's another herd, but I want you to be sufficiently behind the first guy so that, you know, you come, not all at once, but first, a little while later, the second, and then a third. Again, Jacob's mind is always scheming, always plotting. He's, he's full of genius. He's full of schemes, right? He's a very intelligent man. And he thought it'd probably be better if, if they came one at a time to soften Esau, right? He says in there, hopefully I can appease him. Maybe he'll accept me. But finally, after all that, the sun goes down and night falls. And still, Jacob now takes his, he takes his, uh, his, his wives and he divides, and he, and he takes them back across the other side of the stream. This is in verse 22. Genesis 32 and verse 22. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. And then the implication here is that Jacob goes back to the other side of the stream. So he puts his two wives, his children, his most prized possessions, of course, he puts them on the other side of the stream, but Jacob crosses back to the other side. And then in verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. And now that's the first point of my sermon this morning. Jacob alone. And you know, there's so much bound up in that, in that word alone, my friends. Because you try to put yourself in Jacob's shoes as he crosses that stream. His wives are on the other side of the stream his herds, right? Perhaps he sees uh, the, the, the people that are putting together these presents for Esau, getting ready, right? Ready to stage their exit, right? Just right, you know? And now the sun has gone down. It's dark. It's quiet. And Jacob is left alone on the other side of that stream. No one with him. His wives are not with him. His children are undoubtedly in bed at this point. And there's Jacob all alone, in the dark. And now he can begin to think, my friends. Now he can begin to contemplate all what God had done for him in his life. No doubt his thoughts go back to Bethel, 
And I put the promise that God made to Jacob there from Genesis 28, verse 13 and 15. When God met with Jacob at Bethel, this is what God said. And behold, the Lord stood above it. That is that ladder, that, that staircase going up into heaven. And said, I am the Lord, or I am Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. Your seed will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now from last week, we remember that the promise God made to Abraham was land. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed, said God to Jacob. Seed, right? Many children. Your seed also will be like the dust of the earth. And blessing. The same blessing God made to Abraham, God now gives to Jacob. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now, my friends, as Jacob stands there, as he lays there on the other side of the Jabbok, of that stream, and these promises must come back to his mind. And he thinks of all what God has promised him, all what God has done for him. He thinks of the struggle that he had with Laban <clears throat> and all what he did to build up the wealth and all his success that God gave him, the donkeys, the sheep, the oxen, the goats, everything that he has, all his wealth, the vast herds that God has blessed him with. And now he thinks to himself, it must all come to an end because the army, the armed men of Esau are coming. And he's thinking, now what will happen to the promise of God for me? And this really, my friends, is how this chapter is to be set up in your mind. That as Jacob is all alone on the other side of that stream, this is the conflict. Because we have now, as we've seen it in the life of Abraham, we see it now again in the life of Jacob. How will the promise of God be kept? It can't possibly be kept. What's Jacob going to do against 400 men? What's Jacob going to do against a man who has resolved to kill him? You see, my friends, how Jacob comes, in a sense, already to the end of his own resources. He has nothing left to offer. He, he's divided up his camp. He's sending off these gifts. But at the end of the day, he knows that he's in a very bad place. A very bad place. And now, my friends, comes the lesson that God will drive home. Because we read, and again, it's interesting how we read this. Uh, as the story goes, in verse 24, Now, then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Just, just like that. Jacob is alone in his thoughts, thinking these things through, no doubt. Perhaps Jacob even looked up at the stars of heaven since it was night. Perhaps he thought, these are the, this is the picture that God gave to Abraham, that as many as there are stars in the sky, so many will your children be. And suddenly, out of that darkness comes this man. And we're not told anything about this man. He's a completely mysterious figure. He comes out of the darkness, and without any warning, without any conversation, he seizes Jacob. And down they go to wrestling. And the word here, uh, wrestled, is, is, is like the word grappled in verse, in, uh, <clears throat> in verse 24. And he men wrestled. It's a, he grappled in the dust. 
So literally, the, the picture here is, you see these two grown men rolling through the dust, the dust flying, they're getting dirty, the, the grass and everything, it's a ruckus, it's a, it's a full-on wrestling match, and they're grappling with each other. Now, this is the lesson, then, that God is going to teach Jacob. He's going to pound home this lesson. Jacob, you're weak in yourself, and your strength only is in me. Now, how does God teach Jacob this lesson? Well, this wrestling match can be divided up into three stages, my friends. Three stages. In the first, Jacob holds his own. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, and when he, that is this man that's wrestling with Jacob. Now, we, of course, know that this is the angel of the Lord. This is the, uh, a, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But Jacob doesn't know that. And so, verse 25, and when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is, this man, this angel of the Lord, saw that he was not going to defeat Jacob. Isn't that interesting, my friends, that you might say, this man sees that he's not going to prevail. Jacob is wrestling so hard that this man, this almighty son of God, realizes that he's not going to defeat Jacob in wrestling. Perhaps, my friends, there even came up a thought in Jacob's mind, if I can just hang on for a little longer, if I can just find a little bit more strength in me, I can win this man, I can throw him off me, and I can, I can repel him. And so the first stage, my friends, is Jacob holds his own. Jacob holds his own. And, and if I could even maybe push that a little farther, is he maybe even holds out hope that he might be able to prevail against this guy. Again, at this point, Jacob has no idea who he's wrestling with. So Jacob holds his own. Maybe I can defeat this man. Maybe I can repel this attacker. I mean, for all Jacob knew, maybe this was somebody from Esau's band. One of, his, one of the people had gone on ahead and attacked him. He didn't know. So interesting, though, that it says that the man, this man that he's wrestling with, saw that he had not prevailed against him. So the first stage, Jacob holds his own. Stage two, the second stage, because we read that when this man realizes that he's not going to defeat Jacob by wrestling, he just stretches forth his hand and with one touch, right? And notice how the text says it, right? And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched. It doesn't say he grabbed his leg and wrenched it out, right? He just touched it. He touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now, my friends, it must be painful enough to have your elbow, right? That happens occasionally. Sometimes people have their shoulder dislocated, right? But to have your hip dislocated? Can you imagine the searing pain? And again, Jacob isn't just lying there in bed, right? He's, he's engaged in a life struggle wrestling with this guy, right? And suddenly his hip is wrenched out of its socket by the touch of this divine antagonist. And so stage two, my friends, is Jacob helpless. Jacob helpless. Now Jacob is as helpless as a child, and worse. He must be writhing, probably, probably groaning in pain at the awful thing that just happened to him. 
far from wrestling, far from defeating this man, it's over. It's long over. There's nothing now he can do. But, my friends, in Jacob's helplessness, he also realizes that this man I've been wrestling with is not a mere human being. So out of Jacob's helplessness, my friends, it's so important that we see that point this morning. Out of Jacob's helplessness is born faith. Faith. By the way, my friends, faith can only be born out of a sense of our own helplessness. When Jacob maintained the thought that maybe he could win if he could just hold out a little longer, there was no need for faith. But when this divine antagonist touches the hip of Jacob and wrenches it out of socket, now Jacob learns faith. And that's the third stage. The third stage is Jacob victorious. Because, my friends, Jacob wins this wrestling match. Do you hear me this morning? Jacob wins this wrestling match. He prevails. He gains the victory over the second person of the Trinity. I wouldn't dare say it this morning, my friends, if it wasn't given me in the text. Jacob prevails. And how does he prevail? He prevails, my friends, in verse 26. Because his antagonist, again, the angel of the Lord says, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And my friends, there's faith. There's the faith of Jacob. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's the hymn we sing sometimes, isn't it? But you see, that's not the point of this hymn, because, or the, this passage, because this passage is not victory over the world, my friends. Faith is the victory that overcomes God himself. That doesn't sound, it doesn't sound right to say that, does it? But that's the clear teaching of this passage. That Jacob prevails over God in his helplessness by a prayer of faith. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so Jacob becomes Israel. That's the title of the sermon this morning. When Jacob became Israel. And Jacob receives the blessing. The end of verse 29. And he blessed him there. And he blessed him there. What a beautiful story, my friends, of how God works in the life of his people. That God leads his people to that place in their life where they acknowledge, where they own their own helplessness. And out of that helplessness, my friends, is born faith. I will not let you go. You see, that's the language of faith. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And now Jacob gains the victory. Jacob didn't lose. That seems so paradoxical to us, doesn't it? That when Jacob became helpless, he won. He won the victory. He prevailed with God. He took hold of God and said, I will not let you go. That's the strength of faith. I will not let you go until you bless me. And then the angel of the Lord blessed him there. And Jacob left with his blessing. And as that angel of the Lord disappeared into the darkness, I can imagine, my friends, that Jacob must have stood up. 
And he must have looked around him. He must have looked at that flowing stream there. He must have heard the cattle lowing and the sheep as they, as they rustled around. We're told here that the sun rose in verse 31. Now the sun rose upon him. Perhaps his wives were just getting up. Perhaps his children were stirring. But Jacob stood there in the strength of faith, in the strength of the Lord his God. And he said, this is Peniel. Peniel. The Hebrew word for face is panim, penile. You hear the word face there, face. I have met God face to face, and my life has been preserved. I don't think Jacob ever forgot penile. And when we read the following passages, we read how the situation with Esau resolved itself. No gifts needed, no scheming, no plotting, Jacob. Now it's time just to rest in the strength of the Lord your God. And so he did, and so he prevailed. And my friends, what a lesson there is in that for us also today as we contemplate uh, the, the Lord's Supper and all that God teaches us here. Here in the, the communion table, as it is spread before us, my friends, we are taught our own helplessness. And we are taught the strength and the power of God to do for us what we never can do for ourselves. Are there helpless ones in our midst this morning? My friends, there's no place for anyone at this table who still thinks, well, if I just struggle on a little harder, if I can just keep working a little harder, I can, I, I can still work it out with God. But if there's one here, my friends, hopefully there are many here, who says, I have no resources left in myself. Justly I should lose my life when I come face to face with God. But this morning, I come face to face with God, with bread and with wine. I come face to face to God with a broken body of Jesus Christ, my Savior, and his shed blood. And I put all my trust in what those symbols represent. And now I come into the presence of God. My friends, you never can fail with that. For such people, there's a place here. For such sinners, for such guilty ones. No place here for those who can make it their own way, who have all that they need. But when you say, I have nothing left in myself, I find everything I need in Christ. Then I can say, come. Come, here's bread and wine for you. Thus shall we move to that part of the service then. <clears throat> we turn to form two, which is on page 45. Last week, we read the first part of the form. So on page 45, we come now to the words called the formulary. Formulary. Page 45 of our Forms and Prayers book. Beloved, hear now the words of the Apostle Paul concerning the institution of the Holy Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when our Lord said, Do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this holy supper as a constant memorial, invisible proclamation of his death. The Apostle Paul also teaches us that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. As we partake, therefore, we bear witness that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to take upon himself our flesh and blood and to bear the wrath of God on the cross for us. We confess that he came to earth to bring us to heaven, that he was condemned to die that we might be pardoned, that he endured the suffering and death of the cross that we might live through him, and that he was once forsaken by God that we might be forever accepted by him. The sacrament thus confirms us in God's abiding love and covenant faithfulness, sealing to our hearts the promises of his gracious covenant and assuring us that we belong to his covenant family. Let us then be persuaded as we eat and drink that God will always love us and accept us as his children for the sake of his Son. Our Lord also promises that as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we are fed with his crucified body and shed blood. To do this, he gives us his life-giving spirit, through whom the body and blood of our Lord become the life-giving nourishment of our souls. Thus he unites us with himself, and so imparts the precious benefits of his sacrifice to all who partake in faith. As a means of grace, this meal also unites us with one another in the bond of the Spirit. As the Apostle says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Thus, even as he unites us with himself, he strengthens the bond of communion between us, his children. Finally, the remembrance of our Lord's death revives in us the hope of his return, since he commanded us to do this until he comes. The Lord assures us that he will come again to take us to himself. As we commune with him now under the veil of these earthly elements, we are assured that we shall behold him face to face and rejoice in the glory of his appearing. Our Lord Jesus will surely do what he has promised. Let us draw near to his table then, believing that he will strengthen us in faith, unite us in love, and establish us more firmly in the hope of his coming. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, with one accord, we give you thanks for all the blessings of your grace. But most of all, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, we most humbly thank you that your Son came to us in human form, that he lived a perfect life on earth, that he died for us on the cross, that he arose victoriously from the dead. We bless you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for the gospel of reconciliation, for the church universal, for the ministry and sacraments of the church, and for the blessed hope of everlasting life. We pray, gracious Father, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that through this sacrament our souls may truly be fed with the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us the full assurance of your grace as we draw near to your holy table, filling our hearts with humble gratitude for your mercies. Unite us more fully with our blessed Lord, 
and so also with one another. Enable us in newness of life to pledge ourselves in service to Christ and all your children, and lift our hearts to you that in all the troubles and sorrows of this life we may persevere in the living hope of the coming of our Savior in glory. Answer us, O God, through, our, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray. Let us all say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we draw near to the table of our Lord, let us confess our Christian faith. And let us all say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Beloved, hear these gracious words of promise spoken by our Lord. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Let us lift them up to the God of our salvation. Dear congregation, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear congregation, the bread which we break, is it not a communion with the body of Christ? Well, dear friends, I think of the Lord's Supper as, in a real sense, a penile. The Lord is present at this sacrament in a unique 
in a special way. And so the Lord's Supper is a penile. It's a place where we meet God face to face. And as Jacob had to learn the lesson, so we also have to learn this lesson. That we only can have a place here because of what is represented before us visibly in these symbols. That we come into God's presence because he has has ordained a new and a living way by his blood. That is what the death of Christ has made possible. That we can come into his presence without fear. There is no other way. Jacob had to learn that at Peniel. That it was only out of his own helplessness, with his hip screaming in pain. But it's in that helplessness that his faith was born. And that he could take hold of God and say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I think of what God said to Zechariah, the prophet, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And also the text for this morning, which I don't believe I've mentioned yet, the text for this morning. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's the clear message of the Lord's Supper, my friends. Dear congregation, take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of Christ was broken for a full forgiveness of all our sins. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Dear congregation, the blood of Christ poured out for us.
Dear congregation, as the wine comes to you this morning, I think again about Peniel and how here our own efforts count for nothing. Again, the message of the Lord's Supper to us this morning. Here our own efforts count for nothing. Just as Jacob learned in his life that all his struggling and all his scheming and all his plotting and all the tricks that he played, it brought him great wealth in this life. But when it came to God, when he came face to face with God, all his own efforts came to an end. And he could only cast himself upon God's mercy. Dear friends, as you receive the wine this morning, I wonder if you could ask yourself this question this morning. Is there one here who needs his hip dislodged this morning? Is there someone here who relies so much on his own efforts, who looks so much to his own merits with God, so proud of the Christian life that we live. Congregation, is there one standing here behind this table? Perhaps the preacher who needs his hip dislodged, an elder, a deacon in the church. No matter how long you may have been a Christian in your life, again and again, to say it in this way, we need the angel of the Lord to come and to dislodge our hip with that touch because we have to be brought back again and again to this place of helplessness. And isn't the Lord's Supper so beautifully calculated to do just exactly that? To teach us that our own efforts count for nothing. What a happy day, my friends, that is, when God dislocates our hip. Then Jacob becomes Israel. Deceiver becomes one who struggles with God and prevails. Dear congregation, take, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Christ was shed for a full forgiveness of all our sins. Congregation, as we bring this sacrament to a close, I will have to ask you at this point to take your forms and prayers book and to read this responsively with me now. On page 48 of the forms and prayers book, if you're able, on page 48, I'll read the line marked minister, and you can respond with the line marked congregation. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who satisfies you with good. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you our most humble and hearty thanks that of your great mercy you have given us your Son to be our Savior from sin and to be our constant source of faith, hope, and love. We bless you for permitting us to show forth his death and to receive the communion of his body and blood through the Holy Sacrament. We praise you for uniting us more fully with the body of Christ and for assuring us that we are heirs of your heavenly kingdom. Grant that our commemoration of his death may tend to the daily confirming of our faith, the establishment of our hope, and the strengthening of our love. Enable us henceforth to live always for our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen. Let's sing in the blue hymnal. We're going to sing in the blue hymnal, number 111. Slight change, but 111 in the blue hymnal from Psalm 63. O Lord, my God, most earnestly, my heart would seek thy face. And in verse 3, we sing, My Savior, neath thy sheltering wings, my soul delights to dwell. And what follows then in the three verses of number 111 in the blue, and, and during the uh, singing, we will also have uh, your collection. So please stay seated for the singing. The collection will be taken, and you can stand for the benediction. So Psalm 100, er, number 111 from the Blue Hymnal.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.